The Old Testament reading is from Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7 and going on to the end. The law of the Lord is perfect, revealing, reviving the soul. The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the law are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warmed. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. depicts King David as a skillful musician. 1 Samuel 16.23 says that he played the lyre for King Saul, for example. 
Indeed, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls attributes some 3,600 songs of praise and other compositions to David. 37 of the 150 psalms in the Bible are by, of, or about David. And it's hard to tell which is which. While Psalm 19, for example, may have been written by David, the Hebrew in the first verse can mean for the use of David or dedicated to David, as well as written by David. So it's impossible to be sure that Psalm 19 was actually written by David, although it certainly is a psalm of David, as it were. In Psalm 19, and let's just retain the name for ease of use, David begins with knowledge about God and ends with knowledge of God. That is, with knowing God in a personal relationship. David's lyrics highlight two ways in which God speaks to us. Through the heavens that he has made, and through the moral law that he has revealed. In this, David reminds me of the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant, who famously remarked, two things awe me the most, the starry sky above me and the moral law within me. Psalm 19 takes us on a journey with David, from his recognition that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord at the beginning and that the law of the Lord is wholesome to his very realistic assessment of his own moral standing before God. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. David invites those who sing this psalm to discover a personal knowledge of God that builds upon and goes beyond mere knowledge about God. Turning from the heavens in the first half of the psalm to the moral law, David reflects upon the commandments revealed to Moses. It's clear that David doesn't just embrace the law simply because Moses claimed that he got it from God. Rather, David appeals to his own moral intuitions as confirming that the law is good. The law of the Lord is wholesome, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. For David, there is an intimate connection between 
the goodness of the law and the goodness of God. God is the rock at the foundation of the law. He is the one whose moral decrees are firm rather than arbitrary and of whom fear or respectful awe should rightly endure forever. As the philosopher Francis Beckwith puts it, God's commands are good not because God commands them, but because God is good. This God is not subject to a moral order that's outside of God himself, but neither are God's moral commands just arbitrary. It's not as if God could just command and therefore make the thing that he commands good. As if God could say, um, I want you all to go around torturing small children for fun. And that would make that good. Rather, God issues his commands that are good in line with his eternal character, which is good. God's commands are issued by a perfect being, says Beckwith, who is the source of all goodness. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing or even defending them. They don't have to believe in God or in the Old Testament revelation of the law in order to know or to do the right thing. But that's because, like everyone, they are created in the image of God, who is the good. So we can't say to people, you can't know the difference between right and wrong unless you believe in God. Or you don't ever have the ability to do the right thing if you don't believe in God. But what we can say, what we can argue, is that although a belief in God isn't a requirement for being moral or being a decent sort of chap, the existence of a God who is personal, who is good, is crucial for a coherent understanding of the nature of morality. Like most humans, David experiences apparently objective moral values. That is, they're things that we discover to be true about reality, not things that we invent. He experiences values as facts, as it were, things that we just bump into in reality, things that he discovers in his own life and experience, not just things that his culture, say, invents. For example, King David's treatment of Uriah the Hittite, husband of the very beautiful Bathsheba, 
Have a look at uh, the account in 2 Samuel 11. His treatment of Uriah wasn't merely something we dislike because of our evolutionary history happening to have gone a particular way. Or merely something that our society happens to frown upon. Rather, as David himself acknowledged in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, his, albeit indirect, murder of Uriah by sending him on a suicide mission was objectively wrong. Again, only the recognition that moral values are objective makes sense out of David's recognition of his own moral fallibility. Who can discern his own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. It's impossible to make moral errors if there is no objective standard of right to get wrong. So objective moral values are, by their very nature, these sort of transcendent ideals that prescribe, that command, and that obligate our behaviour. But an ideal requires a mind. A prescription, a commandment, requires a prescriber, a commander. And an obligation must be to a person who is deserving of our allegiance. Hence, even many atheists admit that in the absence of a transcendent deity, objective moral values simply can't exist. For example, here's a quote from the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. He said this, he said, It's extremely embarrassing that God does not exist. For there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can no longer be any good, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. So the perfect moral personality of God that grounds the moral law that we all know, at least to some extent, in our hearts, that perfect personality of course, throws our moral failings into a very sharp relief. And it grounds the religious quest for forgiveness. And in Psalm 19, David simply asks God for forgiveness and help. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. That's not as if God is suddenly going to deprive David of his moral responsibility. But rather that through building a relationship with God, David's character would grow to be more like God's good character. For David, both the heavens and the moral law speak of God because they're both spoken by God. They are both grounded in the, the character, the nature of God. And David recognises that he falls far short of God's moral character, as do we all. 
But he also recognises that since the moral law expressed in the law of Moses isn't simply some sort of abstract ideal but is in fact part and parcel of the character of God, it's possible to seek forgiveness for the past and to seek strength for the future in relationship with God. Thus, Psalm 19 calls us to a life of objective value and purpose that's lived out of the forgiveness and the hope that flows from knowing our Creator's love for us. Amen.